2: You're listening to Cork Today
3: on Replay. On C103. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
0: And I have to
4: say, the weather forecast not looking too bad for this week. Could it be the start of our summer? A very good Monday morning to you as we welcome you along to the programme with John Paul taking calls 0818 103 103. Texts and WhatsApps to 86 to 103, 103, and it's all about winning here on C103. We've got that wonderful competition where we're planning on sending one listener along to see Rod Stewart not once but twice with the second concert going to be in Marbella. That is a wonderful, wonderful prize and we're uh, doing that just to say a big thank you. Our recent LR listenership figures were out and we just want to thank each and every one of you for listening to us and here on the programme this week if If you are a fan of 90s and noughties music then you've got to get along to a disco that's going to be held in the INEC in Killarney on Saturday the 27th of May. It's a night where you will enjoy the best music of the 90s and the noughties with the artists that dominated the charts from Five to DJ Alice to Mark McCabe and lots, lots more. Tickets are available on biggestdisco.com but we have tickets for you plus three of your friends to go along to the biggest 90s and noughties disco at the INEC. As I say, it is on the last Saturday in May the 27th. Later on in the programme, we'll be asking you either a movie or a music or a TV question related to the 90s and uh, noughties and we'll give you that question a little bit uh, later on. And listen, let's stay on the winning. I was absolutely thrilled to see Siobhan, our own Siobhan Max Sweeney, the Derry Girls star picking up her first BAFTA TV award last night and of course it was for best female performance in a comedy programme and she won it for her role as Sister Michael in uh, Derry Girls, the eye rolling Sister Michael of Our Lady, Our Lady Immaculate College. just not the name of the college. I loved the character of Sister Michael. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge and was a huge Dairy Girls fan, but I loved when Sister Michael appeared on screen. I just thought she was fabulous. So, a very, very worthy winner. And her speech last night was so on point and so funny. And she even managed to get a dig in. At the politicians in Dublin, Stormont, and in Westminster, and used the wise words of her beloved sister Michael by saying, "It's time they started to wise up." And I thought that was very, very uh, clever how she used her speech for that. So uh, well done! And actually, as I say, I'm a fan of Derry Girls, so I wasn't surprised to see the creator Lisa McGee winning the award for best uh, scripted comedy. But congratulations to Siobhan McSweeney. Oh eight one eight one zero three one all three I was following, I have to say, with great sadness over the weekend and I was following it online. I was actually watching some of the videos that were coming out uh, on uh, social media, uh, social media on what was going on for some of the asylum seekers in uh, Dublin. And I I see the Justice Minister, Simon Harris, is now going to meet with the Garda Commissioner this week. And that was following the attack that happened in Dublin's uh, city centre at the site of homeless asylum seekers seekers and that comes after gardi are now remaining on very high alert and they're fearful of f- further violent protests against asylum seekers and they're fearing that the attack on the tented camp in Dublin city centre on Friday night will now push the far right agitators to step up their campaign against refugees. And I was watching, thinking somebody's going to be killed or somebody's going to be seriously uh, injured. The Irish Refugee Council, obviously, they've now called for asylum seekers to be taken off the streets. They say now it's a matter of urgency after that migrant camp was torn up and it was set on fire following a demonstration at the site. I mean, I I, I heard of one man uh, who arrived here with all of his belongings in, in a bag and the bag was destroyed, so he lost everything. And actually, to see some of the video footage, you know, like a half-read book, And to see somebody's toothbrush and other people's belongings and just all set on fire. It really was horrific scenes. Guardi, including the public order unit. Now they'd earlier been present. There'd been this protest at the encampment and when that protest was going on people heard about it because it was advertised on social media. So there was a counter demonstration of people coming out saying look they're asylum seekers leave them alone you know what are you doing why are you protesting why are you intimidating them uh, so there was a kind of a standoff between the two sides that looked like it was it really sounded nasty at some stage with the shouting over and back and then the so the justice minister now saying look he's going to meet with Drew uh, Harris in relation to that particular in incident. And the minister has reiterated that every player, every person has a right to be safe in this country and that any protest can never extend to an attempt to intimidate or to endanger uh, anyone. And according to one security source, it's the same group of people involved in stoking up the tensions and playing on the concerns of local communities and that in turn then Escalates the situation. That's exactly what happened on Friday and on Saturday night. And there now the worries and the concerns that further protests planned will also have the potential to turn uh, violent. I mean, I was looking at the some of the video footage on Saturday night that was going up on social media. I mean, there was young children there who who I felt should have been on home watching the Eurovision. They shouldn't have been out, you know, shouting and the language out of some of these uh, children. Shouting and coming out with comments and statements that I don't, I don't even think they fully understood. So, Gardy now are continuing to try to monitor the online activities of several prominent right. Right winged agitators because they just stir up the hatred and they just fuel it all and stoke it up and get more people angry and out onto the street. The Department of the Equality officials are currently trying to secure accommodation for those who are forced to camp out near the International Protection Office in the city centre up to five sites For accommodation are due to come on stream, but it's going to be about three to four weeks before they're ready. There's one in Dunleary and there's two other in uh, Dublin uh, city centre. Now, I see in the Examiner today that the government is continuing considering sheltering refugees by procuring barges, which could offer floating accommodation. Officials are examining what the British government have done in Dorset, where they have used three storey barges to house hundreds of asylum seekers. Now, a spokesperson for the department confirmed that the use of flotels that's what they're calling them, to help with the severe shortage is being considered. Now, it is understood that officials approached Dublin Port about the possibility of accommodating refugees on cruise ships, but authorities there say that the port couldn't function at full capacity if that was the issue. So, I don't know where these flotels would actually be placed, but they are uh, looking at that uh, as well as other sites. Uh, but as I say, the other sites, the ones in Dunleary and Dublin, are at least. Uh, between uh, up to five weeks whereas we've got we've got a problem now the Irish Refugee Council's Chief Executive uh, Nick Henderson as quoted in the papers is saying that asylum seekers need to be taken off the street they need to be put into temporary accommodation and that needs to happen as a matter of urgency he said they are clearly now being targeted by the far right and their supporters so they say they've grave concerns for the immediate safety of these uh, people and they need to be brought in off the street and somehow given temporary accommodation. Over the weekend the Tisha Lee of Ruradkar he spoke out about the violent scenes saying he condemns them unreserve, unreservedly. He said a tiny minority, and it is a tiny minority of people, are clearly determined to make capital out of what is a very difficult situation. Now the Guardi are uh, investigating at the moment And the teacher says we simply can't tolerate actions such as this. And while that was going on in Dublin, I also spotted that the the Dragon Den star, do you remember Peter Casey? He ran for president at one stage. He's labelled those who attacked a centre. He is planning for Ukrainian refugees in Donegal. He labelled them as thugs. He had set aside this building in Bunkrana and it was set on fire on Thursday night. Now, thankfully, nobody was in the building, but it did cause severe damage. He expressed his outrage on social media over the weekend and he's now vowed to rebuild the centre. And on his social media post, he said, my not for profit centre for Ukrainian refugees in Brunkrana was broken into, severely damaged by fire. He said the sick individuals who did this do not represent the good people of Donegal. And he said he's now more determined than ever to open up even more centres to help Ukrainians. But looking at what happened uh, in Dublin, you just have to stop and think, where has our humanity come? At the end of the day, these are human beings who find themselves homeless In a country that they don't know, many of them are fleeing atrocious uh, conditions. Now, while while some may be economic refugees, and I know that's always what the far right saying, they're economic refugees. They're fleeing, not necessarily because their life is is at risk in their home country, but they're fleeing for a better life. And God knows enough of the Irish. uh, We have been economic refugees over the years. And I absolutely accept that some of them may have a criminal history, but we can't tar all refugees with the one uh, brush. Many are genuinely freeing uh, persecution, and burning their possessions and threatening them is just simply so uh, wrong and i genuinely hand on my heart think that the majority of decent irish people would agree and would not want to see uh, what happened like people do absolutely people have a right to protest people might not always disagree with government policy and therefore they do have the right to pro- to uh, protest but they don't have the right to commit acts of violence and they certainly don't have the right to intimidate people as i say where has our humanity gone ginger said what happened at the weekend in dublin was not right and it was unruly but acts like this will continue as the far right is gathering support. It is now up to the Irish government uh, to look now at our borders and to protect them as we cannot cater for everybody coming into this country. Something has to be done and the ones that have arrived have got to be accommodated because nobody wants to see people like that. Nobody wants to see encampments on the streets. I absolutely uh, accept that and Anne says good morning Patricia. We have to stop asylum seekers when we have no places." for them. Hotels now are only taking the Ukrainian refugees we can't have rows of tents on our streets. Uh, 100% something has to be done and it was we allowed too many people I think it was it got to five over 580 uh, came into this country with no place for them to stay and the only option was for them to go into tents in, in Dublin City and then that's what happened when the far right uh, get involved and they stoke up this hatred and uh, as I say decent people certainly don't want uh, to see that. 0818103103 103. Uh, John Paul's taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862. 103,
5: 103. Cork Today on C103. Now
4: last week, Beaumont Residential Care in Cork announced that its nursing home, which provides care for 73 residents, is to leave the fair deal scheme at the end of the month. We were hoping to speak with somebody from the Care Choice group that run that nursing home, but unfortunately they're not available to speak to us uh, today. So is there now a danger that other nursing homes will also decide to leave the fair deal or worse, decide to close is Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland which represents private and voluntary providers and uh, Tyke joins me. Good morning to you Tyke.
1: Good morning Patricia. Good K- to speak with you again.
4: And great to speak with you. Care Choices announcement last week, did it come as any surprise to you? Uh,
1: no, not, no surprise unfortunately. I mean it's a hugely worrying development but as I say not, not one bit surprising. I mean I've been speaking with yourself and others over the last number of months uh, about what we would have termed the crisis in care. We, we took the unusual step in December last year uh, publishing an open letter to the Taoiseach around the funding of Fair Deal. So, yeah, it is It is not not one bit surprising. But hopefully, I mean, you know, we, we as a sector, and I'm, I'm sure I don't speak for Care Choice, obviously, but I know from speaking to them uh, that they're also committed to, to working collaboratively to, 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 to address this particular issue. And hopefully we'll find a solution sooner rather than later.
4: How much extra money do nursing homes need in order to operate safely? Because that's what it's about it's about operating safely.
1: It is, absolutely, and it's, it's also about fairness. I mean, the, the fair deal is, you know, uh, many of our members would call it the unfair deal, um, you know, which which is not surprising when you look at the figures. I mean, the, the figures in Cork alone, for example, and I, I stick to Cork just for, for the purpose of today's conversation. I mean, there's 19 public nursing homes across Cork City and County, uh, and they receive €1,734 per resident per week, uh, and across the 48 private and voluntary homes, uh, their weekly fee is just 1,073. So there's a there's a difference there of, you know, 661 euro per resident per week. And and that that is at the nub of the issue, really, um, is, is the unfairness of fair deal. I mean, each individual home negotiates, as it were, with the National Treatment Purchase Fund. And, you know, it depends on the resident profile. It depends on the staffing. Uh, but we know from a myriad of government reports I mean, the CNAG, the Public Accounts Committee, the Ombudsman Report, uh, the Value for Money Review, they all have said that the current pricing model is not fit for purpose. Um, but to date, government haven't addressed the issue and haven't um, grappled with the, the, the necessity to change the funding model. And what we're seeing now is the results of that, of the, of that inaction.
4: Yeah, and another uh, figure that kind of astounded me when we when we reached out to Beaumont Residential Care for uh, a statement. Um, the other figure that they put in their press release was the fact that obviously we're in a cost of living uh, crisis at the moment yeah. and there's lots of inflationary pressures, which is recognised by the HSE. So the HSE increased the funding to the HSE, their own homes in Cork, and they increased it by 183 euro per resident per week to cover all of the you know, prices going up. Uh, but yet the National Treatment Purchase Fund, who uh, negotiate uh, with the Fair Deal, they only increase the funding by sixteen euro per week on average to Cork homes. It's very hard to justify those two figures, isn't it?
1: It is absolutely, and you know, people will, will listening this morning will be saying, "Are you sure those figures are correct?" Because when you do put them down, uh, you know, on paper and write them down, they're quite stark. And as you say, you know, uh, we've been through a very difficult period of COVID, and we're now into a period of hyperinflation. And ultimately, many nursing homes are are locked into agreements with the state the provision of care. And, you know, Minister Butler has said in a couple of occasions that she's working with DNTPF to try and address that. Um, but to date, nothing, nothing concrete has happened. And my fear is that if we don't act uh, with, with some urgency on this, that we will see further homes um, across the country who will be forced into either making a decision to close. And we've seen 23 closures in the last uh, 16 months. Um, but this latest news in, in respect of, of Beaumont Residential Care to leave the fair deal scheme, you know, could become uh, a feature of other homes if, if the uh, appropriate action isn't taken by government.
4: Up to now, Tyke, how has the NTPF justified a higher rate for HSE homes versus mm. uh, the private and voluntary sector?
1: Well, the, the interesting thing to have again, which your listeners will probably say with, with some incredulity, is that the, the HSE don't negotiate their fee at all. Um, so the, the Fair Deal and the NTPF only negotiates with the private and voluntary sector. So the HSE effectively say, you know, here's our cost, and it's missed, whatever that cost is. No oversight, uh, no negotiation, no annual review. It's basically, here's the cost, and it's missed. Whereas our members have to justify every single euro, uh, which is appropriate, given that it's public money. But when we, when our members didn't make the case for increased funding, You know, by virtue of the changing of the dependency of the resident uh, or the increased cost as a result of the inflationary period, uh, it's met with a brick wall effectively. And, you know, that will only lead to one conclusion, which is, you know, more homes closing, as I say, are unfortunately more homes leaving, leaving the fair deal scheme. Um, oh, but but what
4: about the HSE um, making the point that public nursing homes receive more in funding as they generally have higher costs of uh, care? Um, and that was part due to the HSE run facilities mm. have higher ratio of nursing staff compared to the private uh, sector. Um, and then they've, obviously they have different rates of pay and different leave mm. In, mm. entitlements uh, than yeah. their public sector. Can that, that, could that justify it? Well,
1: that's the, that's the noble of the issue. I mean, the fair deal is supposed to be a a single scheme. I mean, all of nursing homes, whether they're public, private or voluntary, are inspected and regulated by HICWA. And then the fair deal scheme is supposed to be a blind, whether it's public, private or... And our members, you know, can't compete at the moment in terms of staffing. I mean, you and I have spoken on many occasions over the last couple of years about the heroic uh, staff who work across the health service, but particularly in nursing homes. And our argument is that those staff, In public, private, and voluntary, and particularly in the private and voluntary, should be paid on a par with those in their their public sector counterpart. So that's where the the issue is ultimately. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the fee structure that's currently there is suppressing the wage rates and the remuneration and the terms and conditions of staff who work in the private and voluntary sector. And, you know, we're not naive. There's not going to be you know, a couple of hundred million overnight. But even if government were to sit down with the nursing homes Ireland and say, right, OK, over the next two to three years, we're going to engage in a programme uh, of bridging that gap between public and private, then, you know, at least there'd be some certainty and some confidence reinjected back into the sector. Whereas at the moment, our members are saying to me, there's no future. Uh, what we're seeing is, um, you know, constant uh, reviews of their deal, nothing happening. So what I'm, what I, I'm being forced into either closing or, or withdrawing from their deal. Um, you know, we wish to work collaboratively with the government. I wish to address this. The sector has a huge role to play, as uh, you know, in terms of meeting the, the care needs of an aging population. But to do so, it, it must be it must be a resource. And the staff are speak to that. Uh, you know, what we want ultimately is equal pay for equal work.
4: Yeah, I I, I know uh, profit sometimes can be a dirty word and at the end of the mm-hmm. day, these private nursing homes uh, are businesses, you know, they, yes. you know, they have to make some kind of uh, of a profit. Do many nursing homes make large profits?
1: Well, I mean, ultimately, you're right. The investment you're required for a nursing home in the morning is significant. So in the first case, you know, there's a significant investment or you know, bank loans uh, and the capital cost have to be repaid. Um, and then, you know, you do need profitability to be sustainable uh, and to continue to provide a high standard of care. I know from talking to members across the country in the last uh, 12, 18 months that they felt because of the funding model they didn't have an option but to close. They weren't going to to scrimp as it were on, on resident uh, safety um, and, and resident care. Um, but we're currently working with Coopers to, I suppose, uh, get a better picture of that. And I know from the early results which we published in a number of weeks that a significant number across the country are currently, as we speak, losing money on, on a day-to-day basis. And clearly, that's that's unsustainable. Um, I mean, they need to be sustainable. They need to reinvest, for example, in their property uh, and in the building. Um, so all of those elements are critically important. And, you know, the private and voluntary sector still provides excellent value for money to the state. And the fact that it's independently regulated means that all nursing homes have to meet the same standards, whether it's public, private or voluntary.
4: Now, I'm assuming behind the scenes there's some kind of negotiations uh, and talks going on with Beaumont uh, residential care and hopefully uh, things will get sorted before the end of the month. But if it doesn't, uh, Tyke, where would these residents go if their families can't afford to pay for private care?
1: Well, and and that is the issue and I don't know what's happening In the background, but I do know from talking to other members across the country, as I said earlier, if they are in the middle of a a deed of agreement, so if they have a contract which isn't out for another six, eight, or twelve months, uh, there is no uh, commitment from the NTPF to reopen those contracts. So, I mean, I don't. I'm normally a a glass half full merchant and and trying to stay positive. But back to your question, I mean, that is the critical issue. Um, You know,
2: the availability
1: of beds on the one hand in in Cork is, is, is challenging. But more importantly, this is their home. For many of those residents, they have lived there maybe for one, two or three years. So to ask them to leave what is their home is unconscionable, in my mind. Um, So at a minimum, uh, I think what Care Choice have asked uh, in in their public pronouncements is that the HSE would step in and at at a minimum secure the funding for the existing residents who are in the home. And then it may be a case that no new residents... Uh, could be admitted to uh, that particular home or indeed any home under fair deal if they fail to agree fail a rate.
4: Shocking. It's just, I, it's, it's the families in particular. I mean, Correct. it's just, it's, it's dreadful. Eddie in wants to know, is the reason nursing homes are pulling out of fair deal, he's heard that vulture funds are purchasing nursing homes and it's all down to profit.
1: Well, there's been some investment into the sector over the last couple of years. And I think, you know, sometimes the language can be quite pejorative around investment. I mean, as a country, we we very much welcome foreign direct investment in in all sectors. I mean, the pharmaceutical sector in Cork is a classic example. Without foreign direct investment, you know, we wouldn't be as successful as we are. Um, So, yeah, there has been some significant investment over the last number of years uh, by overseas investment funds uh, to the sector. But ultimately, that has all ceased now because of the uncertainty around around the funding model and if that continues to happen, two things will happen. one is that the existing homes may may close uh, there'll be no new investment and then we have an aging, an aging population in which we need, need, need to care for and you know people will say maybe the state should do it and if that that may well be the case but I know from looking at recent figures that the new homes and then built by the state are the HSE, the average cost was four hundred and seventy-one thousand euros per bed. Um, so you know yeah. that's pretty pretty staggering. We've seen as well, you know, the National Children's Hospital. It, it, you know, it's way over budget. It hasn't come in on time. Whereas the private sector has the ability to deliver that. It's independently regulated, as you know, from HICPA in terms of the standard. Um, and that has been the policy of government for a long number of years. The the provision now is eighty percent private and voluntary, as against twenty percent public. If that were to change, then obviously we. The old saying goes, we are where we are. And to ensure that that the existing provision is sustainable, that's the priority for now, is to ensure that all of those who are operating in the sector, public, private and voluntary, have the the funds, A, to provide a high standard of care care, B, to, to meet the remuneration requirements of staff uh, and, and C, to ensure that that, that they, they, they're they not forced into uh, a position of closure or withdrawing from their deal.
4: Okay, we'll talk again, Tyg, in the meantime. Thank you for that and thanks for joining Thank us. Indeed. good morning. Good morning to you. That is Tyg Daly, Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. Court Today on C103. Now, a 49-year-old man from Donnerale is unfortunately in an induced coma in a hospital in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam after suffering life-threatening injuries in a crash at the end of last month. Medical costs, as you can imagine, are huge. So a GoFundMe page has been set up and Damien Horgan's sister Fiona joins me with uh, more details. Good morning to you, Fiona.
5: Hi, Patricia, how
4: are you? I'm very well. I mean, firstly and, and and foremost in all of our minds, what is the latest on Damien's condition?
5: Um, so he remains very critical. Um, he had surgery last Wednesday uh, to repair his ruptured uh, lung. It was clapped. Uh, he's ruptured bronchus and had several uh, tears in his left lung. So he's had the surgery last Wednesday and there was some slight improvement. did an x-ray on the Friday. There was a slight improvement in the lung, but it kind of hasn't really gotten much better since then. He's still quite dependent on um, the ECMO machine that's kind of helping to, like, replacing the function of the lung. And he's still ventilated, so he's still very critical at the moment.
4: God help him. Do do you know at this stage what happened on the 26th of
5: April? So, like, we can only really go by the police report. Um, so, like, we started getting messages in in the morning through the WhatsApp group from his friends. Um, and they, one of them had gone to the police station the following day to kind of get a proper um, report. So they said that he had, cra- he was on his motorbike and he had crashed into a barrier. Um, they kind of said that there was, as far as they could see, there was nobody else involved. But I suppose, uh, like, uh, something like this would be, kind of a massive thing in Vietnam, being a foreigner being injured like that. So um they kind of said that they said that there was nobody else involved. Like we haven't kind of disputed that. His motorbike is still in the police station. Um I mean kind of it was something that we didn't really kind of go to explore any further. I suppose we were kind of just really focusing absolutely, on Absolutely. Absolutely. Regardless state, of yeah. if there was
4: someone involved or not. It could have been just one of those random things where the bike yeah. skidded. God knows anything could yeah, it could have happened. But yeah, D- devastating, Fiona, for the family to get that kind of information when you're so far away.
5: Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, like we all kind of obviously went into shock initially, you know. And the information was very patchy. Um, there was a few different friends kind of trying to communicate with us through Facebook, and my niece had been in contact with one of these friends because he she's a teacher and he uh, she's in Abu Dhabi, and he was kind of in contact with her previous to the accident. So he was messaging her as well. Um, but basically we were told to kind of get here get to Vietnam as quickly as we could.
4: And did family members go out?
5: So, like that happened on the Wednesday, we got in contact with the embassy as soon as we could and we applied for visas. So myself and my sister Mary and my brother in law David, we went out on the Friday then our our visas came through on the Friday and we went out that night then um, so we arrived, I think it was the Sunday night, then we kind of got to um, We had a 24-hour delay in Dubai, but anyway, and we landed at about 8 o'clock on a Sunday night and went to the hospital pretty much straight away then. Um, so, I mean, of course, it was absolutely horrendous. Like, you kind of, I suppose we hoping that things weren't as bad as what people were saying, but it was, I mean, just to see him in the bed. Was horrific. Um, like I'm a nurse myself, so uh, do you know, I mean, well, it was quite obvious how seriously injured he had been. Like he's ventilated, um, had the chest drain, had he had to get his spleen removed. Um, kind of pretty much straight away, that had ruptured and was causing a lot of bleeding. Um, so that had to be removed, and he had to get like multiple units of blood. Um, but he was very critical, very kind of a lot of grazing down the left side of his body and a lot of bruising there. Um, and like that, he'd like about eleven fractured, badly fractured ribs, um, that were very displaced. Um, so yeah. It was and the
4: fact he's nervous. in in a coma, Fiona, unaware that you were there with him.
5: Yeah, like some of the times, I suppose, in the original hospital, uh, they were a bit. I suppose it's very different when you're treating an Asian person to uh, a Caucasian person, you know, with weight and things like that. So the sedation would wear off a little bit from at times, like from time to time. So, like you would see a little bit of reaction in his face, but it's very hard to know, know whether he knew it was us or not. And I suppose we were reluctant. I suppose we spoke to him some bit, but I think he would have been very confused as to why we were there. I know because he had been there for four years. Um, like none of us have had the opportunity to go over before this. Um, so I, we were kind of worried that we would confuse him more than why we were there. And as well, because the ribs were so badly broken, they didn't really want him to be kind of moving around too much or anything just in case he caused further damage to himself.
4: And and he's moved, I believe, to another hospital. Is, is, is the treatment, are you, are you satisfied and happy with the treatment he's getting?
5: Yeah. So, like, when we went to see the first hospital, I mean, you actually couldn't describe it. Like, compared to the cleanliness of hospitals in Ireland, there was no comparison. So we were very anxious to get him out of that hospital as soon as we could. Um, I suppose they were saying that he was too unstable and that they wouldn't be able to provide transport and things like that. And they had a lot of public holidays. So it was eight days he spent in that hospital and he wasn't really improving. And once the public holidays were over, then they kind of had a team meeting and decided it was definitely better for him to be transferred to a different hospital. So he's moved to Cho Ray Hospital then in Ho Chi Minh, which is about an hour away Um and that's one of the best hospitals Great. in Vietnam, thankfully. Great. So, yeah. so,
4: so he's he's absolutely in uh, the right place. What, what was he doing in Vietnam? You say he's there four years?
5: He was working as an English language teacher. So, um, yeah, he's been doing that for about four years now.
4: And loving it?
5: Oh, loves it. Yeah. He had been in South Korea for about nine years before that and China for a couple of years as well. So he just really
4: he's loves a glo- Asia. He's a globetrotter for sure.
5: Yeah definitely he really loved it I suppose like that he's very kind of gentle and quiet and I suppose the respect that he got he got a lot more respect over there as a teacher he was you know the commu- uh, the students I suppose like that would have been um, kind of more respectable and things so he really like embraced the culture and really enjoyed it over there and has made an awful lot of friends in Vietnam as well thankfully.
4: Any medical insurance Fiona?
5: So his medical insurance was linked to a previous job. So oh. I wish, Yeah, so he would have left that um, about a month or so ago, and he was kind of in the process of getting another job, which hadn't kind of finalised yet. So, yeah, he has no medical insurance at the moment. I think the previous insurance probably would have only covered maybe 20% anyway. The cost of health insurance are very expensive, um, so it's, it's a big kind of luxury to have very good health insurance. Um, but at the moment, he has none. Um, his friends were kind of looking into anything they could do about that at the moment, but there's been kind of no no choice. So he has no medical insurance at the moment. Um, so yeah, it's kind of up to ourselves. To kind of we're trying to provide the money to pay for it. Um, and how much and is important.
4: it is it costing?
5: So like we, it's probably about like twenty years ourselves and we've paid on medical bills so far. Um, I haven't kind of done an up-to-date amount at the moment, but when, like, you have to pay for literally everything, so even the transfer from one hospital to another each pay, then when he was brought to the ICU there, they said it was going to be between 700 and 1,000 euros a day, but that's actually increased to about 1,500 now, um, because of the extra care that he needs, like, because he's, because of having such a massive surgery and how much pressure his under now. Um, He's kind of having to get dialysis as well for his kidneys, so um, that as well is costing more money and half things. So yeah, it's working about fifteen hundred a day now. That's incredible! And, um,
4: and the you, the family yourselves. I mean, have obviously used up every single bit of savings that you have.
5: Oh yeah, completely. Like I mean, obviously you have a, a bit of a rainy day fund, but I mean the cost has just kind of been rising and rising and. Like, somebody has to be there with him at all... You know, somebody has to be there close to the hospital at all times to consent for any medical procedures because he's still unconscious. Um, So, like, we spent about 10,000 euros on flights alone. Yeah, Um, yeah. People have been kind of going over for about a week... Um, all the time. So yeah,
4: to have, to have somebody there. So there's a GoFundMe page uh, set up called uh, Help Damien in His uh, Fight uh, for Life. Uh, and yeah. I've, I've checked it this morning. It's doing really well, isn't it?
5: Yeah, oh, it's, the response has been absolutely amazing. Like family, friends, relatives, kinda local businesses and things. The support has been just unbelievable. Um Yeah, it's just been mind-blowing, really. Like how much people are behind us you know, I suppose like that we were really trying to cover the cost ourselves a lot of people were asking It's not like, possible
4: It's not possible yeah, it's Fiona as well as uh, as No, no And I mean yeah. ult- and ultimately it's to uh, stabilise him I, I assume Fiona to get him back here to get him back home would that be the long term plan?
5: Yeah, that would definitely be the long term plan um, I suppose that the the damage to his lung at the moment—it would probably be a long time before he would be able to actually fly. Yeah. Um, it's not something that we've kind of spoken to the doctors about yet because he has just been too critical. You know, it's, it's very far ahead. Um, it could be a couple of months, I would imagine, before he will be able to come home. But definitely, um,
1: that would the be the would long be term for
5: him to come home. Yeah. Okay,
4: so it's um, help Jamie in, uh, in his fight for life is the GoFundMe page.
5: Yeah. And we also have some donation buckets um, in the Bank of Ireland, Mallow, Gunners, Hairdressers in Mallow, Rare Fashion in Market Square Mallow and the Artist Store in Blannerill. And a family friend, Nora Roach, is also holding an open garden fundraiser at her house in Annabella Mallow on the twentieth of May from two to six pm, just train to Well done. To try and, help well done.
4: and if any, if there's any other fundraising events, uh, get the details into us, Fiona, we'll certainly plug it for you. And keep in contact uh, with us Thank and you. let us know. And, and send on. Uh, eventually, when he opens his eyes and is talking and communicating, yeah. send on our best wishes to Damien. Uh, listen, Fiona, Thank it's been so a much. pleasure. Thank you for taking time out to talk to us. Thanks. Good Thanks. morning, Thank
5: you. Yeah.
4: Somebody is calling out a, a fake news alert, and this is to do with the story. It's making a lot of getting a lot of media attention we actually hear we had it here on C103 uh, last week as well it's the story of a the sister says a cruise ship uh, there's a report that a cruise ship is going to be in Castletown Bear next Saturday well the local fisherman according to this dexter with great knowledge all know the new million euro breakwater is too narrow to allow a cruise ship to dock by the million dollar pier. The pier is far too busy with Spanish lorries waiting for their boats to fill up. What a great country. Well I know even the mayor of uh, Cork County Danny Collins uh, was last week welcoming in the cruise ships that are going to be coming into uh, Cork and uh, he was talking about the Bantry season that begins next week 22nd of May. They've got 13 scheduled calls into Bantry and Castletown Bear was mentioned by the mayor a town that we do usually associate with fishing we will welcome a cruise ship on the 20th of May which is this Saturday but according to this listener it's not going to be able to dock so let's wait and see let us know please what happens on Saturday 0818 103 103 and I've had a response in from the was this? Did this come in from the uh, HSE? This was to do with Neve. One of our listeners contacted us last week to explain that the HSE are introducing into Cork University Hospital. It's a new payroll uh, system, and Neve says there's been some teething problems. Um, but she said staff now, because of these teething problems, are not getting the correct payment every month. Staff were told at the time there would be. Te- teething problems but I don't know how long it's in place but uh, Neve felt it should have been sorted out by now she said it's ongoing and it's just not good enough when people are having to pay mortgages and other bills they're expecting money to go into their account and then when they check their account at the end of the month to discover they haven't been paid uh, correctly some people are missing mortgages and she Neve, who spoke to us last week said non-nursing staff are affected more uh, so uh, people like involved in catering the porters uh, Etc. So we got on to the South South West Hospital Group who confirmed. Uh, that the HSC recently recently I just don't know when implemented a new payroll system it's across the country so it isn't just Cork University Hospital and they say unfortunately there has been some issues across a number of sites which the national team are currently working to address as a matter of priority end of statement so it's one of those statements that doesn't give us much information that we can, can go back to Neve because Niamh herself who works at Cork University Hospital accepts that they knew when the new system went in that there would be some teething problems but according to Neve, they just I don't know how long they're going on but for her they're certainly going on too long and I'm assuming she's one of those that's been affected, affected. if I get any more on that story uh, I will bring it to you now some commentary in and, and I'm sorry if I upset people when I started the programme by talking about how upset I was to witness and watch what had happened in Dublin at that migrant camp and the homeless people who the, the asylum seekers who have come to this country and found themselves homeless and homeless And it's awful to see in our city centre encampments, literally, of uh, refugees. But I, I, I still hand on heart what happened, the scenes of what happened and the intimidation of those people and the burning out of the encampment and burning out people's possessions. I just hand on heart cannot justify that that's the Ireland that we live in and the people would think it is okay that we can allow that to happen to people, some of these people, very, very vulnerable. Anyway, not everyone is agreeing with me. One person says, Patricia, I'm a big fan of yours. I listen faithfully every morning, but I do not agree with propaganda and I hope I'm not issuing propaganda on the radio. But this sister is pointing out there was a migrant on one of the videos who was an extremely violent uh, person in that camp. Uh, Patricia, they have to be vetted to keep our own people safe. I've no problem with them coming in as long as we know who they are. Uh, Patricia, people are genuinely fearful and I do accept that and somebody else is talking about this migrant who seemingly ran after a, a young lady uh, with an iron bar. But I'm always fearful when you get one person like that, that gets highlighted and then suddenly every single migrant that comes into this country uh, is targeted and that they're all the very same when they're not. And, and that's That's the problem when you get this far right right, who are a tiny minority of people who are just inciting the hatred. And that's what I'm uh, fearful of. But Henry also says, is the far is it the far right that is the problem or is it our open door policy? Surely Ireland needs can't keep taking people when we don't have the proper facilities for them. Should we keep taking people and then let them sleep on the streets? How wrong is that? Surely we should stop the flow till we have the places and that that's where the problem lies. That's where the government and all of the various agencies and departments need to get their act together so that we don't end up with these encampments and we don't end up with people who arrive into this country looking for refuge and they end up having to sleep on uh, the streets. And when I said that some of them of course will be economic migrants who are coming here believing they're coming for a better life somebody's almost saying well good luck with that if they think they're going to get a better life in this country. We have our own homeless Uh, people what about the forgotten Irish shame on the government for letting them in there must be a lot of money handed over to the government but remember when it's asylum seekers they're not they're not inviting them in they come here and they arrive do we need to tighten up on the borders I think that's what a lot of people are saying and vetting yeah 100% I agree that vetting we need to have proper vetting uh, done in this country and Michael in Castletown Bear says Patricia I don't like repeating myself but when I see the disgraceful behaviour towards those people the asylum seekers in our capital I would ask our minister for justice to reintroduce the cat of nine tails because believe me the cat of nine tails never see, sees the same backside twice Thank <laughs> you. Hence these gangs might stop and think before they abuse helpless uh, people. And that's uh, Michael. Uh, Please don't say Michael. We'd have to go down the route of uh, corporal punishment but I accept and know the point uh, you're making. 0818 uh, 103 103 Breathe In Mallow says Patricia I totally agree with the points that you made earlier. People are people. They're human beings at the end of the day. It's disgraceful burning their belongings. Shame on the people who got involved in that. And that was just the kind that was the point thank you brother that was the point of i was making like where is our humanity i think the majority of us irish people are decent people and nobody would willingly do and would willingly agree with what happened uh, with those people. Okay, all well and good, We, don't, we need, do not we need to tighten up our borders? Do we need to vet people 100%? But don't target everyone with, with the one brush. Nobody knows the stories behind all of those people and how traumatised uh, many of them are before they even arrive on our shores. It isn't an easy decision to pack a bag and flee to go to a country that you know little or nothing about. 0818 103 103. And can I just move to a Completely different topic, and I very much welcome people's views on this. This is our own Bishop of uh, Cork and Ross, uh, Finton Gavin, speaking in the Echo newspaper today. I spotted this, and he's speaking out against the pressures family are facing for First Holy Communion and confirmations and I did notice on Saturday I mean we're certainly right in the middle of First Holy Communion season and I love to see particularly the little girls and it's lovely for the boys as well, the girls and the dresses and they all looking gorgeous and, it, and it's lovely and as I say I was travelling at the weekend I was in Waterford and uh, as, uh, and we were leaving I was out and about early on Saturday morning so I passed through a number of towns and villages and everywhere we went there seemed to be First Holy Communion on and then I was down in Tremore across the weekend and lots of the little communion girls and the boys were out, you know, celebrating their big day. Uh, but you could see how beautifully dressed everybody was. And Bishop Gavin is picking up on that and he was commentating and speaking about Cork Penny dinners because Cork Penny dinners who are just doing fantastic work uh, for people in Cork City and uh, county and of course Katrina and her gang have once again this year helped out families struggling with the association uh, with the associated costs that come with first holy communion and confirmation this year cork penny dinners gave out 36 communion dresses 24 pairs of shoes for the little girls and they also helped to dress very smartly 17 boys for their first Holy Communion. They also supplied confirmation outfits for nine boys and for 15 uh, girls. And Bishop Gavin was saying that the Catholic Church does not require anyone to spend huge sums of money at First Holy Communion Day, are for confirmation. And in particular for First Holy Communion, he describes the Eucharist as a free gift from God. And he said, that's what First Holy Communion Day is all uh, about. And he said, I do appreciate, though, there are other societal and cultural challenges that people somehow get caught up in and put themselves under huge pressure. The church, he says, or the bishop says, the church was attempting to address the Culture associated with communion and confirmation. And while he did not want to bash people for dressing up, he said it's not the church's intention that any family should be put under financial pressure he said the pressure some people may feel to spend and to spend money that they may not even have he said is coming from places outside of the church and he said outside of the schools and the parishes and he said they're powerless at the moment to influence that. Now he said they are trying to do their best and he reckons that they've been some way successful when it comes to confirmation because I don't know if all but many of the confirmations in court And Ross, They wear the the gowns, the the white garments, you know, which are similar to what a priest wears and the symbol of the Holy Spirit uh, is on it. And I'm assuming they're just hired or given out on loan for the day. And then the bishop is saying what you wear underneath is up to yourself. If you want to go out and buy new, but, you know, families don't. They can wear whatever the child can wear, whatever they want underneath. But they can do that for the confirmation. But it's very, very different when it comes to the First Holy Communion. And he accepts that. It's very different to change, particularly the culture associated with First Holy Communions, particularly the, tri- the the traditional thing for the little girls to be all dressed up and for the little boys to be all dressed very smartly uh, as well. But he says, as far as we can, we're trying to place the in- the emphasis on what First Holy Communion should be all about. He's hearing stories about people putting an awful lot of pressure on themselves for confirmations and communities, communions with hairdos and all kinds of things. But he said, really, that is not uh, essential. So I'm interested in the thoughts of people. Do you agree with Bishop um, Gavin? Are people putting themselves under too much pressure? Have you witnessed some of the pressure that people have put themselves under? As I say, when I was traveling at the weekend and came, you know, through many towns and villages spotting people for the First Holy Communion and I have to say the adults all looked like they were going to a wedding they were beautifully dressed uh, and you could see the newness of clothes and hairstyles were done and everybody was looking wonderful and that's all went and good if you can afford to go out and buy all of the new out- outfits but of course we're living in a cost of living crisis at the moment so some families unfortunately are just m- maybe even getting into debt so thank God we have somebody like Katrina Toomey and uh, Penny Dinners, who were able to help out so many families once again this year. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Bernie is taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. C
5: one zero three jobs.
4: Woodbrook Family Practice, there in Newmarket, they've got a vacancy for a part-time practice nurse. You email a CV and a cover letter, please, to Medical Secretary, eight. 987 at gmail.com EPS Group in Mallow they're recruiting for a service fitter. It's for installation and service of all aspects involved in their water and wastewater products. CVs please to jobs at epswater.com A driver wanted for a tipper truck it's covering Limerick, Clare, Tipperary and Galway. More details from Tom on 087 397 nine three nine four and a general laborer is wanted for farm and yard work it's in the Rathcormac area more some building work and timber cutting will also be required 087 647 0839 you'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more this is c103 You're listening to Cork Today
2: on Replay.
3: On C103. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
4: 103. Now, while we all enjoyed last weekend's Eurovision Song Contest live from Liverpool, today our memories are very much in Mill Street because it was, it's exactly 30 years ago this evening that the 38th edition of the Eurovision Song Contest was held at the Green Glens Arena. And the winner was, of course, the wonderful Niamh Kavanaugh with a song that I personally still think is one of the best ever songs to win the Eurovision Song Contest and to share her memories of today. I'm delighted to say Niamh Kavanagh joins me. Good morning to you, Niamh.
6: Good morning, Patricia. And You're no way unbiased in any way about
4: this decision. <laughs> <laughs> and can I also say we were hoping to have Noel C. Duggan, but unfortunately he's not able to join us. But of course, Noel C. was the reason that we all ended up in uh, Mill Street 30 years ago uh, today. But firstly, take me, I take you back to last weekend, uh, whereby you got to call in the Irish vote. Was that a great buzz?
6: Oh, it was an absolute brilliant buzz. It's so funny because you're kind of in RT for two days to do that 30 seconds or what, less than 30 seconds. But it was kind of fitting because it was great. They kind of showed Mill Street earlier, obviously, because the Sonia situation on the on the Interval Act, which was great, they, they had her back in. So it was kind of nice that I came in and did the votes, you know, just to remind people who actually won. Like, <laughs> no, but I'm joking. But I mean, it was so lovely because they actually showed Mill Street a little bit in that in regards to they represented... You know what happened in Mill Street thirty years ago. It is astonishing what they have achieved. If you think about the scale of the competition and how Mill Street absolutely rose to the occasion, not just rose to it, but excelled in it. It was phenomenal. like you know yeah. i've 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 spent a lot of time talking about this for the last couple of weeks. And over the last thirty years, when I meet someone who was there, there's a different look on their face. The emotion is different because they were very invested in Mill Street. It felt like everybody won that night, if you understand what I mean. Yeah.
4: And and can you remember how did you react when you heard the event was going to be held in, dare I say, what one BBC uh, newsreader who (laughs) apologised subsequently described as Uh a cow shed? Uh, Can you remember what your reaction was or did it even even register with you?
6: I don't know that I really overthought it, Patricia, you know, because to think about it, you know, um, it was quite busy for me at the time, you know, because I I suddenly qualified to win. And then there was just like 14 interviews a day and you were kind of going all over the place. And I was still keeping a good job in the bank at the time. (laughs) So uh, I had to uh, the first time I really became aware of Mill Street, I guess, was when about a month before or a couple of weeks before we came down to it. You know, just before they started the setup, they were just digging out the floor and all that. And actually, I instantly fell in love with the concept because think about it: if it had been in Dublin, I wouldn't have felt like I got away at all. Yeah, I actually, I actually got to go somewhere to represent my country. But even better, I got to do it in my own home country, where there was nothing but love in the room. And actually, it was a unique experience because um, it just it just brought the whole of the community in. You know, and it was just it was just such a lovely thing. Oh, my God. It suited me down to the ground because you know what I'm like. I'm just that kind of person. So and I literally arrived in the door and Noel C. Duggan and Sean Radley, of course, who was giving us the tour. You know, they just embraced me. And the next thing I was just like family forever. Aww. So how there's nothing to be lost in that situation for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it know? was I
4: mean, Noel C. Himself, uh, if Amazing. he was here with us, would would acknowledge it was a whole community Came together, and there was little subcommittees, and there was working groups, and it was—I mean, you know—a town of fifteen hundred people. When you think about it, you're That's right. What what they achieved was astonishing.
6: Mm-hmm. And and actually, they did it with great heart. They did it without losing who they were. You know, I mean, you know, there was no notions. There was no nothing. Everybody did it with great aplomb, great warmth. And, you know, it it never lost that the whole time, which is just beautiful. And and actually, in a weird way, is very much in the spirit of what Eurovision is, because Eurovision itself is a community. So we kind of came in and invaded it. I say we, the Eurovision land Mm. came in and invaded this area, but you absolutely made it your own. And that's what I loved most about it. But, you know, C. Duggan is a force to be reckoned with. He has great energy, always has had. And I had nothing but admiration for that. And his entire town reflects that. And, you know, they responded beautifully. You know, I mean, I can't even tell you some of the characters I met. And I loved it. And I'm still in touch with a couple of people down Ah,
4: there. I was going to ask you that. Have you Mm. been back in Mill Street since?
6: yeah it was back yeah. about the twentieth anniversary we oh, had the right. thing and um we didn't uh, the thirtieth was a bit different, obviously but uh, the thing is um you know Cathy, who I met as a child, she was young with the red hair, obviously we had a photograph taken together because of the red hair situation, <laughs> but we still we're still in touch all the time, which is very nice, and you know for me. It's, you know, we started off as a fan, but then we're kind of become friends over time. So that's really a lovely thing to still have that connection there. And, um, you know, I think about it all the time. I always tell people when I meet them, you know, you should go to Mill Street. I said, it's quite it's quite a a moment when you kind of go in and see me in the middle. I'm I'm really proud about the fact that my photograph is still on the on the poster. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. (laughs) And it will be there forever. I guarantee you that um, leave and and, and go back then to the week leading Mm -hmm. up to it. Was there a sense? that your song was going to do it?
6: Uh, No, I mean, people... I didn't really pay much attention, to be fair, because there was a lot to do. But uh, there was a lot of talk. People liked it. They were very in support of it. And, you know, a few of the lads in the crew were going, I think we might have another one in us. And, you know, but you take that on on the, you know, the chin a little bit in the sense that you love the fact that they're in support of you. But I don't think anybody really thought we were going to win, except the people who put the few bob on. But, you know, I think it was because... Because we'd won the year before, I couldn't really lose. You know, so if mm-hmm. I'd lost, people would have said, oh, it's because of the year before. But the, I I didn't think we were going to win. You know, I didn't think, did I think we deserved to win? Absolutely. It was a great song. I really loved singing it. It wasn't about that. It. You just don't have any control about what the voters do. So it would be down to whether they felt the energy of what you were doing in those three minutes. And there was a lot of good songs and a bit of fun. And the thing, the other thing that happens is, when you're there for the week, uh, or now two weeks, you think everybody's going to win because all you do is live that. So you're listening to all of the songs all the time, and you get to know them all. And actually, you just think you can't really pick out a winner. You know, it's very yeah, difficult.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it was back in back in your day. It was a it was just a jury vote.
5: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving all of in June.
4: Wasn't it? It wasn't a public vote. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was just, yeah, just, it was just it was. yeah. And the and the I I thought about you on Saturday night because the way the voting went with Norway and Sweden and their neighbouring countries was very similar yeah. to what happened with you and Sonia, wasn't it?
6: Yeah, very similar. But you know, it, it's it's a really good thing, you know. And and I know everybody's going, oh, Sweden, they've matched us now. You know, and John, you know, Lorraine's won twice, like just like Johnny or whatever. Well, Johnny's won three times, but 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 technically, but you know, the thing is, it's a good thing. It's uh, people are looking at like this as a bad thing. It's a good thing. It doesn't take away from the fact that we, as a nation of four point seven million people, have won a, a, like a European competition, like a worldwide competition. Now, really, you know. If, for seven times more than most countries. It's like, it's still a brilliant thing. It doesn't take away from what we've done just because they've done it too. You know, I think it was always inevitable too because they've really put the work into their selection process. And, you know, and a lot of the great songwriters across the world are all... You know, um, based in Sweden. You know, there's a lot of Swedish mm, singers. Yeah, yeah. It's it's inevitable that they were going to catch up because they're in touch with what's going on. You know, and you know, I thought Lorraine did a great job, so I'm I'm only happy about it. So it can't be a bad thing.
4: <laughs> and it's almost like the Eurovision stars have aligned because when they host next year, it's the 50th anniversary of ABBA.
6: Oh my God! It's going to be the best fun. Can you imagine what's going to happen? Like. Like, I'm sure the world is just holding its breath for maybe ABBA to do a night. I mean, please, <laughs> please. like You have to. You know, you have to. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I couldn't be happier. Like, I'm so excited about it. You know, so, I mean, it, listen, it's all good for the competition. And what's good for the competition then still makes us relevant because we're still very much a part of it. And I know people feel a little disheartened because we haven't done as well as we should have in the last couple of years. But I still believe that if we go and you just do what we do we will we will achieve it again and we may not win we may win but i think even just Taken to the stage at any stage of the competition is well worth it. Yeah, Even don't drop out. It. Yeah, I, I yeah, hate when I hear people it.
4: say, "Oh, walk away, I walk away." I just think that's yeah, really. Don't say that about the football no. sure. The no, 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 and it's yeah, you're you're, <laughs> you're dead right, and it's almost like you're sour losers. We can't do that. Somebody wants to know: Does Nee feel we should go back to the national song contest? Was that was it a national song contest when you got selected?
6: Yes, there was actually, and I suppose technically the latest is the same in the sense that people submit and people perform on it but I think you kind of need to see them on the bigger stage and see how they react within that the late late studio doesn't really allow for that yeah so um but I know every year RTE and the head of delegation Michael Keeley at the moment they work very hard to try and get people to be invested in it so it takes more than that what we need is for artists and writers and the public to support those people who do get involved in it it's all very well to diss afterwards but the reality is not enough people are coming forward with good songs and good performances it's important that we encourage people to do that not make them feel like oh god that's terrible you know i mean and and i think that's really important to do that to make them see the value of what's getting involved they don't have to win it to be you know successful they just have to go in and do what they do and when we do what we do we are really hard to beat in the whole of the world stage we've proven it millions of times so i just think It's very hard for RT because they're trying to do their best, but they're not getting the support from the arts itself and from the public, really, because all they do is criticise. They don't come up with actual solutions to how to fix this. And I think I would rather come from a more positive end of things and get people invested in that.
4: Well said, well said. Did you get over to Liverpool last week, by the way?
6: I think I was the only winner who didn't, but yeah. then I had business. Okay. I had business here.
4: <laughs> because, it, it, cause, I mean, I, I had a friend of mine who was over there and sending me back amazing videos from the, the Euro Club, which seemed to have gone on yeah. not to to the very wee hours of the morning. Um, mm-hmm. That seems phenomenal, that Euro Club. It's, it's a
6: great fun. Oh, it is. It's fantastic. I, generally, when I've gone, the last couple of times, obviously I've gone as an entrant, um, when you go as an entrant, you, you you try to get to your club, but the reality is, when you have a song like I usually have, you can't really be hanging around the clubs till two in the morning. Yeah. But uh, that's not ideal. But uh, but the point is, um, I did do a similar thing in Vienna a few years ago after Conchita won. And it was a brilliant experience to go, but you don't stay for the whole thing unless you decide to buy a ticket and go. Okay. What happens is you you kind of the Euro club runs till the, the actual final, really. And then it's like madness. But it is a brilliant thing for Eurovision fans. There is a lot to do, which is wonderful. If you think about it, it's not just about the competition itself, but it's there's a lot of lovely things that you can visit around it and they can just live. In Eurovision land for maybe a week or two weeks, and I think it's a brilliant festival. And even if you're not massively into Eurovision, it is a magnificent experience. Um, some year I'd like to go back on the delegation because then I'd have to pass to do whatever I want. Yeah. And uh, and yet, you know, not be singing so I could have the crack.
4: Yeah. And and those <laughs> those Eurovision fans, Neve, got their die hard fans certainly. They? Oh,
6: they are. <laughs> but then I've met lots of football fans who are the same. Yes, it's you know, true. It's, it's, true. People, it's true. It's true. It's an interest. You know, people talk about that all the time but actually i love them i don't know as much as they do but i have learned stuff over the years out of you know being corrected when i said something wrong (laughs) (laughs) but i love them i absolutely love them and they know that and because i have great respect for what they do they love They love your vision. They support it. They have opinions and they don't just love everything about it. They have opinions about whether they like or not. But even if they don't like an entry, they're supportive of it. They talk about them, you know, and they keep it alive. And let's be honest, in a few years time, please, God, I'll have grandchildren. i will be able to say. I did that. Yeah. You yeah. know, whereas and then, I could and have said they won't know what that was if it's not. Yeah. There. It's and the knowledge the TV things in the world,
4: the knowledge yeah. that those fans have is is absolutely credit. And just one final piece, because I saw a clip somebody posted it up online. You were invited to was it the UK, the embassy on Friday night. Did they have some kind of a an occasion? Yes. I saw you sing. You were you did the piece I saw was Moon River. What was that? That was just the the, the British embassy, well, was it?
6: Yes, they were. Uh, the, the ambassador uh, to uh, uh, the British ambassador to Ireland held an event for the Ukrainian ambassador just to celebrate the fact that they were doing both to really thank uh, them for allowing them to hold the concerts, but just to acknowledge what's going on. And there was a lot of us there, Brendan Graham and uh, Paul Harrington. There was a whole gang of us there, Great. which was really lovely for us. And, you know, it was just a beautiful thing. And they were really great and very lovely. I have to say I had a lovely time.
4: Do they have Ferrero Rocher?
6: I, I that was my first look, but I didn't it. they made very <laughs> lovely. I know there's an expectation when you go to the ambassadors. <laughs> I tell you, Patricia, we're showing them we're a certain
4: age. That we, we, we are, know that we are, because there's be other <laughs> of I see. We, do, Oh, she not much? Okay, listen. It was a real pleasure. We can do nothing else but play your wonderful song, and we had to have Thank you on me. today because we really wanted uh, to remember and take us back. I can't believe where did those thirty years ago, Neve Gavin. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for that, and thanks for joining us. Call Patricia with your comment. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Court today on C103. And Paul Cavanaugh of McCarthy Insurance Group joins me for our monthly insurance slot. Good morning to you, Paul. Good
2: morning, Patricia. And we
4: want to talk about something that is really quite topical, and I touched on it last week or the week before. And this is to do with our homes being underinsured. Can you explain why so many of us, it seems, have our homes underinsured at the moment?
2: Well, I suppose it's going back a bit at this stage uh, um, where we all devalued our properties back at 2008. During the financial crash, nobody increased their sums insured. We couldn't afford it. Then we came into the uh, COVID-19 and nobody was doing anything. There was no interaction uh, with people. Our offices were closed, et cetera. And all of a sudden then... We've now come into an inflationary period, which we haven't had for some 15 years, where inflation, and particularly building inflation, I know we're all talking about food inflation, but building inflation has also been increasing in the background, and it's only people who are putting on extensions or doing refurbishments currently will now realise that they're going. It's nearly costing more, would you believe, somebody said to me yesterday, to put on a granny flat, onto their house than it cost them to build a house, day one. So the costs are gone through the roof, number one. Number two, the availability of builders, the availability of good builders at the moment is impossible. I think in another news segment, they're talking about bringing maybe builders in from Africa. So there's, there's just the shortage of everything at the moment. Prices have gone through the roof. Uh, for the building materials, I think I've said before on this program that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm linked to one of the indexes there with McMahon Builders. And last year, I think we got eleven increases in ver- every month. There was bare one month we had increases on plasterboard, cement, blocks, glass, metal, uni- everything that goes into a house. Should you need a repair. And as, as a result of all that, the, the index then of how much it would cost to build, rebuild your house has jumped dramatically. And there is and a that's
4: what we should be. When you sit down to work out your house insurance, that's what you have to keep in mind, the rebuilding cost of your yeah.
2: house. Correct. I have a number of conversations weekly at this stage with people. Oh, I bought the house nice and cheap for a hundred and fifty, and I'm going to do a lot of work. Yeah, how much work are you going to do to it? Oh, a hundred thousand. Well, then your rebuilding might be two fifty or even three hundred. Mm. So there's a website S C S I, the Society of Chartered Surveyors of Ireland, SCSI.ie dot ie. Very simple. There's a ready reckoner in there on feet and meters, and my advice, as always, is to talk to a local surveyor, a local friendly builder, and ask him what he thinks would be the re- rebuilding value. And as we did back in the 70s, 80s, we all did our own. We built our own houses, direct labour, etc. And we did them, you know, a lot of the bungalows. And a, I think there was a programme. There on was our, recently, yeah. The bungalows. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. You bought the book and you found out how much it was to build the bungalow. You built the bungalow with direct labour. That's all well and fine. The price of replacing that today has tripled possibly on what you built it for OK,
4: but then just to explain, you see, because I think people get confused here mm. when they're doing their house insurance. They're saying, oh, sure, I only need to have the house insurance if, God forbid, it burns to the ground and I need to do the rebuild cost. But there's a knock on effect for even your small claim on your house insurance.
2: Well, that's actually really you've hit the nail in the head, Patricia. That is where the problem is. If your house burns to the ground and you've it insured for 100,000, you'll get 100,000. If your house is a partial fire, which the vast majority are partial fires, fires in the kitchen, in the utility, uh, in in, in the fire, in the boiler, etc., then you could be looking at 100,000 worth of damage just to do that part. Then the uh, loss adjuster from the insurance company says, oh, your house should be insured for 200. I'm only going to pay half your claim. That's the problem. And, that's and it would be and it would
4: be a half claim, on then on anything.
2: Yes, anything. Yeah, and, and,
4: yeah, and that, and that, and there, it's it, it's as many as one in five they reckon at the moment are under yes, One
2: in five, and it's probably higher to be honest with you. I mean, I reviewed. Would you believe I reviewed my own last week and upped it again? And I had upped it last year because I'm in the industry and I'm thinking about it, and I'm just going. You just need to do it. It doesn't cost a huge amount of money. And I wish they'd do it for free. This is not about money. So some people have increased their sums insured, insurance and it only cost them 20 euros. Uh, I, what I said to a group of people that I met in Kilworth recently, uh, they asked me to talk to them about house insurance because they had heard me on your program. And I said, it's all about peace of mind.
4: Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what everybody. it is. That's what it is. Um, so. Hi, here's a question, Hi Prish. I recently renewed my home insurance, and I went on that calculator website that uh, Paul is talking about. It was very helpful, but there was nothing for rural farmhouses.
2: Yeah, actually, it's it's probably a big flaw in the, in, this, in, in, in 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 what they did, and I think it's because traditionally farmhouses were large two store houses. Uh, that were, you know, linked to the farm and they were insured under the farm. Uh, And we actually did something there a few years ago with, with, with the farmers in relation to that. So I would say, you see, the farm insurance is usually done under a commercial situation rather than a private situation. So I would say to that lady there, I'm sorry, I think you said it was a lady, to contact her insurance broker immediately or whoever organized her farm insurance in relation to that please.
4: Okay, and then the other issue that came up on house insurance was one of our listeners who had changed uh, providers with the home insurance and he had not declared his full claims history. He thought it didn't matter because it was a number of years ago uh, and then something went wrong and now the insurance company are saying, well, you never declared your your claims history.
2: Yeah, well, uh, once again this is a huge problem with people even if you have a second house and you had a little claim on the second house. Everything must be declared. It's you that is you and your partner that are insuring this house, and you must claim your... You read the questions and answer the questions that you're asked. And there is a question there, there in relation to claims. There's a bigger question in relation to flood and subsidence. Answer the questions. And if you don't answer the questions, they can come back to bite you. They will You know what I mean? I've seen it. I deal with them here on a weekly basis. subsidence, flooding, uh, fires. Oh, I forgot about this and I forgot about that. Yeah, there is a small bit of leeway, but not too much. The the insurers are very, very strong uh, in, in in their attitude towards claims. And we have people who have a claim and next thing they disappear. Well, we know that they've gone and they've told the next insurer that... They've had no claims.
4: Yeah, or, and it, but it will come. Common. It'll come no back. To, it'll
2: come back to bite you. Back to bite you, and uh, one other one, Patricia, because it only since I was talking to John Paul last week, it, it has come up. Uh, we've come across this now lately. People doing installing uh, both uh, electrical, plumbing, boilers, installations. People doing it with no degree, in no apprenticeship behind them, they're not a professional in their business, they're not an electrician, they're not a plumber. You can't do it. You can't install a boiler unless you're a professional because if the house goes on on fire, who's going to pay? The insurance companies are saying, who in, who did that job on your boiler? Who put who put in that elect, electrical shower? Who did that? Oh, Johnny So-and-so. Well, talk to Johnny So-and-so because your house has burned down because you didn't use a qualified person to install it. It wasn't installed properly and that was the cause of the fire.
4: And that's why it's so important when you're employing any, any tradesman.
2: Please, everybody. And what I did discover when I was talking to that active retirement group in, in, in Kilworth there a few weeks back was, and the fantastic. I was delighted I did it because there was fantastic questions came out of it. And the big thing again, assume nothing ask the question just to make sure that you have everything done correctly. Uh, we, we, you know, we've heard of stories of people leaving the back door open, people, people leaving a key in the lock, people putting a key under the flower pot. That's a no-no. No, Absolutely. And we all do it. Sorry. So yeah. we're not pointing the finger at any, any yeah. of the listeners listening. Just be careful. Just be cautious. because Would you
4: be fearful, Paul, with the cost of living crisis that some people might say, I won't
2: pay the house. Yes, Patricia, 100%, of course. And I suppose it's only to... to, That's why I'm asking people, talk to your broker, talk to us. We'll try and help you through the situation and give you the best possible advice that's out there. And then at least you know where you stand. Maybe the premium can be paid over a number of months or whatever. uh, And and to see if there's... a better way of doing it, just to make sure that there's peace of mind.
4: But don't, don't ever take the risk of not having your house insurance.
2: Well, you know what I mean. We, I keep saying this. We all get, we all get the renewal in maybe on, 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 on. on, on in the envelope, we put it up on the kitchen table then we forget about it. I get the reminder myself, Patricia. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. just keep just on, top it. on the ball. do Keep on, it. It on the long finger.
4: Alright, Paul, mind of information as always. Thank you for that. We'll chat next Thank month. You, Thanks uh, for joining us. That is uh, Paul Kavanagh of uh, the McCarthy Insurance Group 0818103103 Now, all this week we are teaming up with the INEC in Killarney here on the programme because the biggest 90s and noughties disco is going to be held on the last Saturday in May at the INEC. You're invited along to enjoy a night of 90s and noughties with the artists that dominated the charts from Five to DJ Alice to Mark McCabe and lots more. You can get tickets, by the way, at uh, biggestdisco.com. But we have tickets for you plus three of your friends to go to this fantastic disco in the INEC on May the 27th. Every day, we'll have a winner every day this week. Now, today's question, this is by text and WhatsApp. We'll leave it open for about 10 minutes because we need to free up the text and WhatsApp for Annalise. So for the next 10 minutes, if you can answer this question, what was the name of the coffee shop that featured in the TV show Friends? Was it A, Central Park, or B, Cafe Nervosa. Now You answer A or B along with your name and address by text to 0862103103 to be in with a chance. Uh, to, your name will go to the hat for the draw and you could be winning the tickets for you and three of your friends to head off to the biggest disco 90s and noughties in the INEC in Killarney. What was the name of the coffee shop that featured in the TV show Friends? Was it A. Central Park or B, Cafe Nervosa? Is it A or B the answer? Along with your name and address, get texting, please, oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. 103. Now, as I say, tickets are available on biggestdisco.com. Let me, in the meantime, while we are awaiting our winner, let me take a look at some of your commentary coming in on the. Situation with the migrants and what happened in Dublin with the burning out of the encampment. Somebody says, Patricia, the immigration situation uh, in Ireland. When a glass is full, a glass is full. You don't keep filling when it's full and suddenly it's overflowing. Take what we can look at Take what we can look after now and if we're in a better position later, then accept uh, more enjoying your show. Thank you for that. Martin from says, Too many refugees in Ireland. Patricia, should they not have put a cap on how many refugees come into this country? We've no accommodation here because we're housing so many refugees. Our own Irish are homeless. Uh, Martin is blaming the government and wonders, do we need a government at all? 0818103103. Now, I mentioned the First Holy Communions and confirmations, and this is particularly with regard to uh, the Bishop of Cork and Ross, Finton Gavin, who was commenting on the fact of the wonderful work done by Katrina Toomey and her gang at Cork Penny Dinners and how they this year had helped out. 36 little girls, they got them their communion dresses. 24 pairs of little white shoes were handed out. They also dressed 17 little boys for First Holy Communion. And they also helped out families who were struggling with confirmation. And they supplied outfits for nine boys and for 15 girls. And Bishop Gavin was speaking about that and great work that Katrina Toomey does, but is making the point that families do not need to be spending huge sums of money on the sacraments and he says about First Holy Communion he describes that event the Eucharist being a free gift from God and he was saying that families are putting themselves under too much pressure and I'm interested in people's thoughts and comments on that Nora says our grandchild got his first Holy Communion in Brussels recently. The boys and girls all looked lovely. They all wore gowns. And I absolutely agree with Bishop Fintan Gavin and what he is saying. And he did speak about those robes that they've introduced for confirmation and they introduced that to try to take the pressure away from families. And of course, the idea of the robe is you can wear what you like underneath it and then the robe is covering you, covers the clothes. So when you're in the church, everybody looks uh, the same. He says... Bishop Gavin says he reckons he'd have a hard sell getting that across the line for families, particularly with little girls, with the white dresses and the communion dresses and all of that. But I wonder, do we need to have that conversation? Nora says it's working with Catholic schools in Brussels. Thank you for that, uh, Nora. Catherine says, people are gone mad, Patricia, with glam for the First Holy Communion. They're making it like a wedding, especially when it comes to the little girls. Very expensive. Lots of money is spent and at the end of the day, not much thought is given to the prayers the Mass or what is central to the whole uh, ceremony and that is what it should be all about. That's my view says uh, Catherine. John in Liam Lara. A lot of people agreeing with you Catherine by the way. Um, morning Patricia with regards First Holy Communion and Confirmation they should all just simply wear the school uniforms and then afterwards they can wear what they like. That's from John and Liam Lara. Well in fairness that does work with the confirmations. A lot of the schools, nearly all the schools go with, conf- go with the uniforms don't they? But it's the Bishop Gavin says would it, would it float? with the communions I don't think so hi Patricia holy communions are sickening these parents don't even practice Catholic religion and you watch if you go into any of the church uh, in, into the church for the ceremony the children don't even know their prayers oh well this, the, the schools will have them well schooled to think in learning their prayers for the day but anyway uh, some people want the teaching of religion taken out of our schools it should be like they do in the united kingdom the families who want the sacraments sign in and respect the sacraments and then those that don't don't and they do kind of a sunday school where if you want your child to make first holy communion or confirmation it's not done during school time it's done out of school time and maybe that's what we need to introduce in this country says that uh texter someone else says communion patricia it's all about fashion shows for the parents more than the children, it has just gone so competitive. You can get lovely, reasonably priced communion gowns nowadays. Uh, where will all these dresses be used, or when will all these dresses be used uh, again? Too much too many families are spending too much on the clothes and then big meals uh, out. It's a, a day out for all the family. We are forgetting the meaning of what it is all about. We need to go back to what First Order Communion is all about and wait and see how many of those children will go to Mass again. Will you make a good point on when will the Communion dresses be worn again? I mean if you're in an area where there's the Corpus Christi procession, I think that the Communion kids still take part uh, in that but I wonder how many people pass on communion dresses that's why it's lovely to see what Katrina Toomey is doing because many of those dresses were worn once they were worn by a child last year and then the families decide to donate them to penny dinners I think back to my own uh, communion I was I'm the youngest of four girls so there was three sisters ahead of me who all wore the same communion dress and then I only discovered, I thought I was number four I only discovered a number of years ago that a cousin of mine in England the dress was packaged up and was shipped over to England and she wore it for her communion so I was actually the fifth and honest to God it was as white as the day my mother would have purchased it for my first uh, sister and then it was handed in to the Sisters of Charity School in Clonmel and I remember the following year seeing a little girl in my communion dress and it was still as white. It It used to be it was it was kept in a box in blue tissue paper. And my mother always swore that the reason it stayed white was because of this blue tissue paper. I don't know if there's truth in that or not, but it was kept in a box in the dark. Maybe that's got more to do with. But it was as white as the day. My first sister would have worn it. It wouldn't have been dry cleaned or anything. I'm assuming after every child wore it, it was washed and then boxed, put away in this box with the blue uh, tissue uh, paper. But I take it that day is gone. There's nobody. Do people pass on the dresses? Do dresses run down? If there's more than one girl in the household, will the sister... Will it be bought for the sister and then will it pass on to the next sister? And I know you will have families to say that doesn't always work because you can have sizes and shapes of children can be different. And, and I do accept that. But there are definitely some cases where if an older sister makes the communion, the dress could be perfect for the next child. But families decide to go down a, a different route and buy a new dress instead. And I suppose if they have the wherewithal and the money, that's fine. But I think what Bishop Gavin is trying to get across is people who are putting themselves under Unnecessary strain and under unnecessary financial pressure, and actually going without in order to have this big day out. He's saying there's no need for it. 0818. 103 103. Uh, Bernie's taking your calls. In particular, we are looking for questions for Annalise Driscoll, our nutritional therapist. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103
5: 103. The C103 Cork Diary.
2: With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie
4: the north cork dementia alliance are holding a brain health information evening it's on in city hall in cork tonight between 7 p.m and 9 p.m guest speaker is dr sabina brennan who's health psychologist and neuroscientist tickets are free but prior registration is necessary so you can call them this afternoon 021 4928371. Bingo continues in Butterwind GAA Hall. That's on tonight at 8. The jackpot, 4,450 euro. Cloyne Literary and Historical Society Lecture. They're going to present Anne-Marie Cochran, who's a genealogist. She'll give a talk entitled A Family Mystery and a Literary Surprise. It's on in Hearty's Restaurant in Cloyne. tomorrow night, Tuesday at 8. All are welcome. And the Shambhali Moor community will come together this Wednesday at 8 o'clock in the local community centre to show their appreciation for the local postman Dennis, who is retiring. They want to wish him well for the future. And all are very welcome.
2: Email Patricia now with your story or comment. Cork today at c103.ie.
5: Cork today
4: on C103. OK, you can stop texting us, uh, please, on our competition for the biggest 90s and naughties disco in the INEC in Killarney on the 27th of May. I asked you, what was the name of the coffee shop that featured in the TV show Friends? It was, of course, Central Park. And our winner today, we put all of the names of the correct answers in. We did get a few wrong ones. All of the correct answers in. And our winner today is... Dervila Fitzpatrick in Mallow who actually says on her text I've just posted her text saying the correct answer Central Park My God my friend and I were only talking about this yesterday nostalgia at its finest so it was set in the gods that you'd be tuned in today when we'd run a competition for it well done uh, Dervla. you now have uh, three friends that you can bring along to the biggest 90s and 90s disco the INEC in Killarney we'll do it all over again tomorrow and every day this week we have tickets to give away. 0818 103 103 still getting in some texts and calls on First Holy Communion Micah says Patricia on First Holy Communion I would encourage anyone who wants to hear about how First Holy Communions are and the effects on priests as well to listen to the homily yesterday it's on Facebook by the parish priest in Enniskine. I happened to see it and he made some very pertinent points oh that might be worth watching Uh, And I'm assuming it's up on if you go to the Enniskine, Parish Church and get the mass from yesterday. Thank you for that, uh, Michael. Some of your is to this one, Patricia, I got sent photographs from a friend. I don't want to give any names or any areas or anything, but her, the little girl in the picture who was making her communion. The dress had cost €1,000. That was just for the dress. Her bag, her shoes and her headpiece, another 150 euro crazy. They then had a big meal out in a local hotel and they invited about 20 people that and then had another. That same 20 people went home and another 25 people came back to the house. There was a big marquee with a bouncy castle and they they. They, what they did was absolutely crazy. The mother's outfit, the little girl's mother's outfit cost €500, Euro, not including the shoes. There was two other children to be dressed along with a husband. And by the way, an ice cream van turned up at the end. Oh, my God. Yeah. You see, there are, there, okay. there are families out there who have money. We've been talking about that, particularly during, since the COVID. There's a lot of money in savings. And listen, if people want to spend that that kind of money, they can. But it's the pressure then that it puts on families who can't afford that. I mean, you can imagine that little girl obviously had a fantastic day, beautiful dress and all of that. But then, can you imagine coming back into school and talking about what you did on your communion day and a family that can't afford to have the big event like that? I always feel for the other families because there are families. God knows, we know that there are families who are really, really struggling at at the moment. Oh eight one eight one o three one o three. What else is in on communion uh, dresses? Hi, Patricia. I made my little girl's communion dress for my wedding dress and that particular dress both of my daughters wore. Well done. And that's a lovely tradition. I don't know how many people uh, that used to be a very popular thing to do. I don't know how many people still do it. It used to be for christening gowns uh, as well. But that came up. We spoke about that, didn't we, on the programme a while ago? Patricia, my grandmother bought a beautiful communion dress for my older sister. It was in 1993 and we still have it. Several sisters and cousins have worn it. It looks dainty and small now because back then, of course, we all received our communion in first uh, class (laughs) <laughs> and we weren't just well fed <laughs> some of them are nowadays uh, says a listener yeah I suppose it was <laughs> uh, yeah and the difference between first class and second class I know it's only a year but the growth spurt in that year can be absolutely huge uh, for sure 0818 103 103 if you've got questions for Annalise Drussell our nutritional therapist please get those uh, into us please because she'll be joining us in a couple of minutes. I saw a really, it caught my eye this morning. It's on the front page of The Times under a headline, London to Sydney in two hours. I was thinking, well, because ah, I've done that journey to Australia where it's the bones of 24 hours to get you, certainly from, our, uh, from Ireland to get you to anywhere in Australia. It can take 24 hours. But it seems holidaymakers will be able to fly from London to Sydney in less than two hours. And they reckon it'll happen within a decade but, sting in the tail, you have to travel via space. And this is coming from the Civil Aviation Authority, who say that they're funding medical studies into the effects of sub orbital space flights. And what will happen is tourists will be blasted into space briefly before descending on the other side of the world to their destination. And obviously, you do it in a fraction of the time compar- compared with conventional. Uh, flying. Uh, and they say you could do it in two hours compared to conventional flight from London to Sydney at the moment takes 22 hours. They'd have that down to two hour, uh, hours. Now at the moment there is sub-orbital flights. We know those flights going into space. We've got Richard Branson with Virgin Galactica and Jeff Bezos, a Blue Origin. But at the moment if you want to go on one of their flights, a bit expensive. It's £350,000 per seat. However regulators believe that they will cease to be the preserve of the super rich and that they will become, there will be intercontinental travel option via space and it will be accessible to everyone. And I kind of, when I read that, when you think about when flights first started, it was only for the super rich. People never saw the day where ordinary working class people would be able to get in a plane and sure now it's an everyday occurrence and they're reckoning that it'll be sooner rather than later. Point-to-point travel via space It's definitely not science fiction and it is being worked on according to the Civil Aviation Authority who are conducting this study, the medical study. Obviously, they have to look at how people would react. So what they've done is they're funding studies for how people aged 32 to 80, how they would cope with the G-force that would be involved in being shot into space. And uh, they've already published findings in the journal Aerospace, Medicine and Human Performance. And they say that it is sooner rather than later, and within ten years we, we could just I mean, imagine getting to Sydney in two hours oh eight one eight one oh three one o three and by the way, if you are planning on traveling this summer. The advice that we give every time around this year, check the passports, to make sure that the passports are in date, make sure everybody in your party has a uh, passport because I was thinking, oh, go. oh no, not again. First time passport applicants have been hit with delays and it's in getting the documents processed. And now we're starting already and we're only into the middle of May. There are fears of a repeat of what happened last summer. And we had countless numbers of listeners contacting us who were in real, real panic about losing out on a flight, losing out on a holiday, or one of the family members not having a passport and trying to get their passport in uh, time. Now, last year, there was a record number, obviously, of people on waiting lists. I think it went to over 170,000. And the Fine Gael TD Michael Ring is saying now already by the middle of May, Politicians offices all over the country are already inundated with requests for help. And this is really before the summer season has fully kicked off. Now, Michael Ring is a a TDO based in Mayo and he says there appears to be an issue. In the processing of the first time applications with images having to be sent back to the passport office, which is then leading to inordinate delays. But he said the problem seems to be that unsuccessful applicants are being notified quite late in the process are very near to their estimated issue date that there is a problem with the application and they then have to send in additional documentation or new applications. Documentation back into the passport office. And he said the passport service must ensure. They deal with incorrect or incomplete application forms and they need to do it promptly so that the service users then don't encounter these undue delays because it has, it does and it will affect travel plans. Now, last year, obviously, there was a surge in demand for passports and that was obviously to do with nobody traveling during the pandemic. And that led to significant delays in the processing of applications and especially for people who are applying for the first time. But this is where it caught many families who who are applying for a child's passport for the first time, Michael Ring said. Once people are notified, they can then they then are put back in the queue, but they're put to the back of the queue and they have to start the process all over again. And he accepts. Look, nobody deliberately makes a mistake when they're filling in one of these passport applications. But you know, he accepts it's human nature. It's human nature. Everybody makes mistakes. Well, what he's asking for is. Little bit of fair play here, guys, from the passport office to ensure that people are helped in every way they can to ensure that they have the passports in a speedy and efficient manager manner. He's now urging the Tornesch and, of course, currently the minister for foreign affairs at the moment, Mehol Martin, to get on top of it now so that we don't have a repeat of the chaos that we had last summer, where there was significant delays in passports being turned around. He said the delays were all the more surprising in view of the extra staff that have been hired for the passport service because that's where the big call came from last year. The passport office got swamped and they got swamped because of the pandemic and we were expecting the same number of people to do a huge amount of work. So... That was sorted fairly quickly and extra staff was put in. He said the figures provided to him recently show the number of passport staff has increased steadily over the last 10 years and there's now currently 700 and or there was 751 working last year. We're assuming there's the same numbers this year. He says we have a population of over 5 million. He said they're not all applying for a passport at the same time. So he says surely the passport service can reach their targets on turnaround times and ensure that we don't have these backlogs that we seem to have every year, but last year was particularly bad. And if TDs are already inundated, it looks like it could be a bit dodgy again this year. Uh, Michael Ring also advised anyone who's planning on travelling get organised, get organised early, check your passports are in uh, date, Uh, particularly if you're going on long haul flights, you know, you may have to apply for uh, visas. Now, I do know any time we have dealt with the passport issue, if you are applying for a straightforward passport where you're able to do it yourself online, it is a fantastic service. I'm forever getting calls in from somebody, from a listener who will say, I applied for my passport online. I did it on, say, Monday, Monday afternoon. And by Wednesday or Thursday, the passport arrived in the post. So straightforward passports where it's just a renewal doesn't seem to be a problem there. But it's the first time passports where you physically have to fill in all the paperwork. You may have to go to the guard, the station. Uh, you may have to get somebody to sign something. You've got to get the photographs. You've got to send it all in. And then you, when you send it in, you'll get notification to say, This is when your passport is due and when it's expected. And people take that as verbatim. That's the date I'm going to get my passport. And then lo and behold, that date, you're getting very close to that date when they'll be notified from the passport or they'll be able to track it online. Problem. You need to send in. There's something wrong. Some eye wasn't dotted. The photograph mightn't have been right. You didn't sign something. So you've got to resend it in. And then you go back into the process all over again and you get a new date on when your passport is going to be ready. And that has caused massive problems. So I do have to 100% agree with a Michael Ring. I think when all of this information comes in, why somebody, they can't have a system in place where there are staff members that do a quick scan, some kind of look over everything and make sure that all of the information is correct and that they don't need I'm not saying process it straight away, but just make sure that all the information uh, is there. So I would have to agree with him, particularly when the extra workers have been put in place. But listen, we give it out as a cautionary tale to people. We don't want anybody losing out on travel plans this year because your passport isn't up to date. 0818 103 103. Uh, Bernie is taking your calls. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. Or WhatsApp Patricia with
0: your comment. Oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. Talk to
4: me. Cork today on C one zero three. And Annalise Driscoll of the Health Hub Store at Times Square in Ballincollig uh, joining me. Good afternoon, Elise. Good afternoon,
3: Patricia.
4: And you're very welcome. Okay, let's get straight into uh, questions. Firstly, okay, because there's a lot of people asking the same question about uh, hay fever, and we are into hay fever season. Some advice around hay fever, please. And and for children, is it the same advice?
3: Yes, it is the same advice for children, but products might be different depending on the age of the child. So typically what we recommend are natural antihistamines and ideally you kind of start probably really by April, uh, at the you know middle of April before the pollen gets really bad. I know now, Patricia, I'm walking down in the regional park at the moment and I can see the birch pollen. It's like a cloud of fluff on the ground and I'd say it's driving poor hay fever sufferers, absolutely crazy. So ideally, natural antihistamines, you start taking them a couple of weeks before the season. And they would be things like Cercetin, stinging nettle, um, pine bark extract is another one. And Maconta, an Irish company, they do a lovely Cercetin product that we have. Actually, it's on special offer in the store at the moment. It's uh, 20% off for the hay fever season. Now, that will be suitable for both kids and parents to take. And the lovely thing about quercetin is that it's a natural anti-inflammatory as well. Vitamin C also would be a natural antihistamine, but it's very, very unlikely to be effective on its own. But it's a nice one to add. And, of course, again, very safe for children. Then there's the homeopathic approach. So the polonophan is a blend of different homeopathic remedies in one tablet. Uh, Dr. Vogel does it, and you'll be able to get it in any health shop. And that's, again, suitable for most children and adults. And it comes in a spray as well that you can spray into the nose that might give you a little bit of immediate relief from the running. And the final thing I'd say for people who are very bad, the Dr. Clare she does a um, a blend called Allertone, A-L-L-E-R-T-O-N-E. And that's a blend of lots of different herbs for hay fever and allergies in general, actually. We give it to anybody who's in an allergic state. Other small tips then would be to put a bit of Vaseline in the nose to kind of block the pollen. You can actually buy one called Hay Balm, which is a barrier balm you put on the nose. And uh, the other thing is keep your windows closed.
4: That does work and, and keep away from places like you said, the park.
3: Yeah, absolutely. At this time of the year, you're better off going down to the beach because at least to the beach, you'll always get a sea breeze and there's very likely, unlikely to be a lot of pollen around there.
4: OK, um, here's a question in about Source of Life Gold. The listener wants to know, are the Source of Life Gold tablets as good as the liquid form? The, lic- the listener finds it very hard to take the liquid, but is wondering, are the tablets as good?
3: Um, you know what? They are almost as good, but not quite. So, uh, But if you can't take the liquid, they're they're a perfect alternative. There is something called the ORAC value, which is a measure of how powerful an antioxidant or an anti-inflammatory something is. And the ORAC value of the Source of Life gold liquid is uh, 1,250, whereas the tablets, it's 1,000. Uh, so that's the difference. But other than that, I, I think the tablets—if you can't take the, uh, the liquid—are are good. Yeah,
4: well I, 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 I know. I got a week's supply of the tablets. I was I was on Source of Life Gold at one stage, and I was going away for a week, and I, I wanted to stay on the Source of Life Gold, so I took the. Uh, a week supply of the tablets, so as not to have to bring the big bottle with me. And um, they're bullets, I will say. <laughs> if you have a they're problem, big. if you <laughs> if you have a problem swallowing tablets, you you got to do.
3: absolutely. I much prefer the liquid, but actually, yeah. as you said there, Patricia, a lot of people are heading on holidays. Yeah, they might be having a few drinks in the evening more than normal and having something like that in the it's morning. Great. Would be great, yeah, it's great. So it's great. It. You can always cut the tablets in
4: half. Yeah, that's true. That, that that's true. And I have to say, I don't like drinking anything that's green. I have a thing I just have to close my eyes I just whatever it is about drinking something green I don't mind the taste it's just as long as I don't look at it but I don't mind I'd find the taste okay
3: Yeah and I don't mind the look of it and I don't, I'm don't. i not too fond of the taste but I'll take it <laughs> Everyone's I, you know, different isn't People it? say but I can't stand the taste and I just say it's like medicine Yeah no hey, <laughs> Get on with it yeah. and take it
4: <laughs> <laughs> Down the hatch like a shot Yeah Okay um, Where are we going Hi Annelise I've got pain underneath my foot when I'm walking so, when I'm walking what could it be?
3: Mm. Not fully sure Patricia but I'd say could be maybe something to do with the arch or possibly the plantar muscle so the plantar muscle is a big kind of flat muscle that goes over the whole foot and if you get inflammation in that muscle you will get terrible pain when walking and it might it might because it covers the whole foot you might feel it under the foot or you might feel it in the middle of the foot or over the foot so it could be plantar fasciitis now. If it is the natural remedy, it's hit and miss, it's a homeopathic remedy, it actually worked for me when I thought, now I was never diagnosed with plantar fasciitis, but I thought that's what it was, I had it for about two months, and I took it, R-U-T-A-G-R-A-V, and it's a homeopathic remedy for kind of tendons and muscles, and it worked for me, but I've given it to quite a few customers since, and it's very hit and miss. So you could try that um, and then it possibly is a fallen arch in which case you're going to need to go and get special orthotics in your shoes.
4: Okay. Hi, Annalise. Um, could you give advice around vertigo, please? A friend of mine experienced it for the first time recently and was very frightened by it.
3: It can be frightening actually, Patricia, because um, it can either be a feeling of complete and utter loss of balance or for some people they feel seasick all the time and nauseous. And in my experience, vertigo comes from uh, a couple of different things. One is damage to the inner ear canal and the other is inflammation to the ear canal that has been caused by a viral infection. And that's very common because it's a kind of a flu-like virus. And if it affects the inner ear and you get that feeling, it may be that the inflammation doesn't go down. So we used to have a great supplement that was reasonably successful for people. Um, it was a hearing support supplement unfortunately discontinued but we try and make it up with other things and what we've been using is the One Nutrition uh, P4 Immune it's called and that has got some of the same natural anti-inflammatories in it that were in the other one and we also couple that with Nature's Plus inner ear uh, supplement which is actually a children's supplement but it's got a very specific probiotic in there that's good for the inner ear so that's Nature's Plus inner ear supplement and we combine the two of those and tell people to drink rosemary tea and that has been reasonably successful the doctor will give you stematol which is a travel sickness drug and that can help manage the actual symptoms sometimes for people if you're just having a flare-up so you could try that as well.
4: Okay, hi, Annalisa. I tend to get very hot. It feels like it's coming from the insa- inside out. About thirty minutes after I eat, I've had my blood drawn. I'm not diabetic. Everything's come back fine. Any idea what could be causing it? I am on HRT.
3: Could it be linked to the menopause? I think it is, Patricia. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. So, like that would be a big factor for menopause, and we still don't know why women get hot flushes when oestrogen is dropping. Uh, I know myself that a lot of people would get um, a flush after caffeine, even like, or feel hot after caffeine, because caffeine is a vasodilator and it speeds everything up. Kind of acts like adrenaline in the system. So I think anything that, can, you know, anything that can maybe not be a shock to the system, and not suggesting eating your dinner is a shock to the system, but anything that maybe puts the system under a little bit extra pressure than the, you know, just going around your daily business, could trigger that type of a hotness and a hot flush. The other thing as well is that the liver works quite hard, you know, when you are digesting because it has to produce a lot of digestive enzymes and bile for fat digestion. So, you know, if you're kind of hot over on the left side of your left side of your body, just underneath your kind of rib there, if there's a heat there, it could be a bit liverish and maybe taking a fat digesting support would help along with some other nice things like artichoke and dandelion. And you can get a digestive enzyme that's really good for digesting fat and that might help.
4: What would you suggest to help a student getting ready for the leaving certs?
3: Oh, yes. And God love them now. And the anxiety is just through the roof. So um, generally, what I recommend is a combination of a couple of different things, Patricia. So you want you want the kids to be very calm. You want to support their memory and you want to support their focus and concentration. And you want to prevent them from becoming anxious and get a good night's sleep. So a couple of things will do all of that. Um, again, we've got one um, that's coming into the shop now on special. Um, again, Maconta, they're a lovely Irish company, and they've started doing some fantastic products and blends. So ashwagandha is going to be going on special for us this month. Um, this is a fantastic stress-managing herb for anybody across the board who's going through a lot of stress. It's also brilliant if you're doing a lot of physical stress. So if you're working out an awful lot, it's very good for that. It helps improve recovery, boost the immune system, reduce anxiety and improve your stress coping ability. So that's a fantastic one and we'll have that on special this month for 20%. And then something for an immediate um calming effect. The L-theanine is wonderful for that. So it's an amino acid that they isolate it from green tea mainly and it works within about 15 minutes to give a kind of promote calm and focus and you can give it to people at night time as well for a good night's sleep and Maconta do actually um, an l theanine blended with some B vitamins and something else called L-ornithine or and we're getting great feedback for people who are taking that for sleep at night so a combination of the two of those and the other thing I suggest is that people eat little enough and keep your blood sugar balanced because if it drops you know your your brain will start kind of having to run on adrenaline so you know, make sure there's plenty of snacks going into exams. Bring in maybe a smoothie or a protein drink or something like that, um, or bring in some sucky sweets, even just to give yourself a bit of carbohydrate throughout the exam.
4: Okay, listener wants to know any advice, please, for her husband? He's got fungal infection in his toes, got tablets from the doctor, uh, but he ended up developing a rash from the uh, tablets. What would you suggest? The listener read recently that. Um, bathing the feet in organic tea tree oil would help? Or would you yeah, suggest? Yeah,
3: I think the best tea tree isn't a bad one, Patricia, but I really don't think it does it for a fungal toe. And actually, it would be quite common to develop a rash because those antifungal tablets are very, very, very hard on the liver. So, what I would recommend to start with is something called grapefruit seed extract. It literally is the extract of the grapefruit seed, and it's a very strong, natural antifungal. So, you can. um either put it onto the toe directly or the nail directly or you can put a couple of drops of it into a warm bath of water and soak the feet and I definitely recommend doing that a couple of times during the week because it'll get right in under the nail bed of the toe that way and then morning and evening apply it onto the foot and if it's very very bad you could take natural antifungals so these would be things like thyme extract, garlic extract, oregano extract, Um, there's black walnut is fantastic caprylic acid these are all very powerful natural antifungal herbs so if it's a very bad infection you could take those quite safely without any negative side effects and it'll get working from the inside out but make sure you check in the health shop with your medications so that there's no contraindication.
4: okay and a final one Um, hi Anneliese my grandson had in recently it's really taken a lot out of him could you recommend anything just try and build him back up a bit
3: Well, the Impetigo is very infectious, actually, Patricia, and I think um, generally what I would recommend for the skin at that point is uh, vitamin C and zinc for skin healing. And then to build somebody back up again, you really can't beat the Animal Parade, which is the Source of Life gold equivalent for kids. Uh, It comes, again, it comes in either gummies or it comes in a liquid tonic, and it is very good, or even the Floridix iron is a lovely one. Um, And again, if iron is low in a kid, you'll have very poor wound healing. So uh, the Floridex comes in a liquid orange juice and is very, very easy to take for kids. So either of those to build back up again.
4: OK, and you have a heart health screening day. Is that, th- no, it's not this Thursday, it's Thursday week, is Thursday
3: it? week on the 25th of May. So we've done this before, Patricia is it's really popular. So we have a nutritional therapist comes. Uh, people, they get a heart screening using a sort of a machine that will measure the elasticity of the arteries uh, and see how healthy, basically, and how, how flexible your heart is. Also, people are welcome to bring along their blood results and we can have a look at their cholesterol results for them and they'll also get nutritional advice. So they, if they want to, they can ring for an appointment, ring the shop 21 and it's 60 euros in total
4: OK thank you for that Thanks Annalise for and sure. we'll talk again next week that's Annalise Driscoll of the Health Hub Store Times Square and Balancolic, and she'll put up as heard on the radio on her website today healthhubstore.com uh, a number of people still on about the first Holy Communion day and the dresses and the expense uh, Joan says a friend of mine is a GP when her daughter got her first Holy Communion they purchased the dress on eBay then it was passed on to a friend Joan's granddaughter got a lovely dress in Dunn stores and her younger sister also wore it and Joan says just while you're talking about mass she was at mass last Sunday and the priest asked people to come up to the altar rails and kneel for communion does this happen in any other church it used to happen years ago I don't know maybe it's becoming maybe the priest is trying to reintroduce that practice again Margaret and Bantier made a communion dress from her wedding dress her two daughters wore it Then she passed it on to a charity shop so somebody else got to wear it as well. And someone says, my daughter will be wearing a communion dress that our eldest cousin first wore 20 years ago. Well done you. That's why I've got to stop talking because Nick Richards is up next. Talk to you tomorrow at 10. Thanks to John Paul and Bernie for working on the programme today.
0: Hold up